Well, good morning, Journey Church. How are we today? Enjoying your holiday weekend? I can see some are. Uh, if you're not here with us today and you're watching live uh, or you're watching later in the week, it's good for you to join us. I hope that you are rest, resting and enjoying time with your family. Uh, for those of us that are here, uh, it is good to see you as well. Uh, we're going to be, uh, we're finishing now uh, week six of our sermon series, Gospel Joy and Gospel Power. And so we're going to be, as, as uh, Jed read earlier, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 18. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab that. Uh, that's where we will be uh, today. <clears throat> and uh, if you heard uh, him read it and you, you picked up on some, some things in there about what God would say through, the, through Paul to the church, it's a good chance that you thought, man, that you caught the, the idea that, that Paul says that we're to be lights in the world or to shine like stars in the world. And I think if we're being honest, if we look back even at just like the last two weeks in our country, it seems a little unrealistic. Uh, when you look at the world in which we live, we have seen the darkness of our world in 4K resolution. And I realize like we have whole families in the room with kids from all different ages, so I'll be very sensitive to that. But we have seen violence in grocery stores. We've seen violence in primary schools. And I know that those things happen a lot in our country, but there's something for me personally about this past week that really hit home. I, I don't know if it's because it happened two hours from where my sister and my nieces and nephews live. I don't know if it's because I have a child who just graduated kindergarten, uh, who's heading to primary school, and have had two that have gone through primary school. And I know many of you that are friends, that are teachers, it just hit home, it just hit different this week. And so we, we've seen just the darkness in our world, but not just that, we've seen darkness in the church. Uh, the report that came out last Sunday just exposes the depth that darkness can even have in the church. And we've seen abuse We've seen attempted cover-ups of abuse. It has just been a dark week. And yet, in the midst of this, there's many of you who might even be like, that national stuff isn't even on my radar because I don't have to leave the four walls of my house to feel it. Maybe for you, it's struggle and marriage or with kids. Um, maybe for you it's financial trouble. You're at the end of the month, it's money, but you're not at the end of the month. Maybe for you it's job issues. Maybe you're struggling to hear from God or you feel as though he's distant. Maybe you're struggling to love your neighbor. The reality is that no matter where you are, whether you're broken over the national events or whether you're just broken over things going on in your life, it is a dark world in which we live. And yet, in the midst of all this pain and darkness, we have this passage in Philippians chapter 2, and we just look at it and go, is that realistic? Because here is Paul telling the Philippian church that those who follow Jesus shine like stars. They shine like lights in the world. And it, if it feels unrealistic to us, can you imagine how unrealistic it probably felt to the Philippian church? I mean, here they are living in a Roman colony known for its Roman nationalism and they're proclaiming, not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. 
And in the midst of that, they're feeling suffering and persecution because of their stance on Jesus. And then on top of that, they're worried for Paul. Paul, the man that they love that came through and planted the church in Philippi is now in Roman custody in Rome, awaiting to hear from Caesar the verdict of whether or not he's gonna get to live, much less continue to preach the gospel. And nonetheless, here is Paul calling them to shine like lights. And it begs the question, how were they supposed to shine like lights? Like, how does that work in that scenario, in that darkness? And it begs the question, I think, from us too. How are we to shine like lights in 2022? Not only that, like, not just how do we shine like lights, but how in a place as dark as our world is, how do we maintain that light? How are we not dimmed? How is that flicker of our light not snuffed out by the crookedness and twistedness in the, of the generation in which we live? Well, I think the text, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shows us how to do that. It shows us that because by looking at how Paul instructs the Philippian church, here's what we see. We're gonna see how we actually become shining lights in the world or how we are shining lights in the world. We're gonna see what can actually hinder our light. Okay, so how we become shining lights, but what could actually hinder that light then we're gonna see how we actually maintain our light in the darkness. And then the fourth thing and final thing we see is the attractiveness of the light, okay? So how do we become, how are we shining lights in the world? What can actually hinder that from happening? How instead can we maintain that? And then we'll look at the attractiveness of the light. So first, first thing we see here is how we become shining lights in the world. How do we actually do that? And to do that, let's look at what he says in verse 12. Here's what Paul says. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. To properly discuss what it means to, as followers of Jesus to be a light shining in the world, we need to follow Paul's train of thought. Like how does he instruct them in this? And the first thing he mentions is the way we shine as light, which happens first and foremost by working out our salvation. Now, working out our salvation, what does that mean? I would say working out our salvation is another way of him saying what he said in verse 21 of chapter, or verse 27 of chapter one, which was only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. So what he's instructing is as you let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel, you work out your salvation of fear and trembling. But before he actually gives the charge to the church to work out their, their salvation of fear and trembling, he uses the word Therefore, therefore. Now, I was taught long ago, I can't remember who taught me this, but when you see therefore in scripture, you need to look and see what it's there for, right? And so as you see the word therefore, what you see is that Paul is linking what he's about to say, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, to what he's already said, specifically, I think, in verses six through 11, what is directly preceding this, the Christ hymn that we talked about last week. And we said last week that the Christ hymn is what motivates our unity by humility. And we discussed that, but then what we also see now is that it's the foundation for living our lives as lights in a dark world. We have a, a door between uh, our laundry room and the hallway outside the laundry room that is, that is on a hinge where it can go either way, right? So I, walk, I can walk through it this way or I can come through it the other way. And I see the Christ hymn as that type of thing. It is the hinge on which Philippians 2 is. You look through it, it, it sets up Philippians 2, 1 through 5, and it sets up Philippians 2, 12 through 18. It's the hinge of Philippians 2. We see the humble servanthood in, 
of the incarnation of Jesus in six through eight that inspires us and models for us humility that leads to unity. And then in verses nine through 11, we see this majestic exaltation of Jesus that presses us forward to work out our salvation. But what does it mean to work out our salvation? Because we know that the weight of scripture doesn't say that we attain salvation by works. So what does it mean to work out our salvation? Well, I think because he's building off of six through 11, contextually it means to exemplify the same love for Jesus, uh, or the same love of Jesus for others. The type of love that provoked Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Like Jesus was there, has always been. He was there at the beginning. All things were created by him, through him, for him. And yet he would, would put on human flesh. He would say that I'm not gonna use the privileges of being God to my advantage. Instead, he takes the nature of a servant and is made in human likeness. This is a, and this is done and is provoked in him by his love for those he made and wants to redeem. And so if Jesus, the son of God, is willing to go to these lengths to cross the chasm between humanity and their creator, a chasm that we could never cross on our own. We could never go the other way. He had to come our way. And if he's willing to go these links, then who are we to let our own privileges and our own preferences to get between us and our brothers and sisters? Who are we to let our own privileges and preferences get between us and the world in which doesn't know him? No, we work out our salvation by imitating Jesus's humility and his love, and we also do this, we imitate his obedience. Look at what it says in verse eight. Well, I don't have it up there, but if you've got a Bible, you can look. Verse eight, he was found in appearance as a man. And not only that, he humbles himself to become obedient, to become obedient. And not just obedient in general, but obedient all the way to the point of death. The author of life is obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, the death on a cross. So we work out our salvation by seeing Jesus and then imitating Jesus to our brothers and sisters and imitating Jesus to the world. And the view of his exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of God the Father with a name that is above every other name should stir joy and awe and worship in us. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with worship and awe and joy. This is the way we work it out. And this is the way we shine like lights. But it's not actually how we become lights. It's not how we become lights because being a light is an adjective about who we are. And who we are is defined not by our works, but by God himself. Let me Say that again to make sure we understand that. Who we are is not defined by our works. It's defined by Jesus himself. And here's what he says, verse 12b and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice who's doing the foundational work. <clears throat> it is God who works in you in your will <clears throat> and in your works. God is working into you what you are then working out. Do you see that? <clears throat> God's work is the foundational work, not the other way around. It's not the other way around. And how can we say this? Well, I think if you look at verse 13, you'll see two uses of the same word that help you see that. And the word is for, right? It's the word for. We work out our salvation for it is God who works in you. And the second use of it, God works in you for his good pleasure. 
It doesn't say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling so God will work in you, so he can be pleased with you. That's a very small change, but is a monumental change in the idea of what it means to work out your salvation. <clears throat> we work out what God works in for his pleasure. And, we, and, and if you think like, okay, I, I can maybe see that here. Let me just, again, I did this two weeks ago. Let me again, let me show you Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, just to see, show you another way that we see this. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I want you to see right here, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for what? For good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith. And then we are saved for good works. And there are good works that Jesus himself has already prepared for us. He's already prepared for us, but what we have to walk in them. We have to walk in them, but he's already prepared them for us. The way we become lights in the world is by working out the salvation works that God has worked into us by grace through faith. And this shatters a paradigm that I think has actually been part of the problem that's put evangelicalism where it is in this moment in history. I mean, don't get me wrong, God is doing amazing things through our brothers and sisters in the world. And he's done amazing things through Journey and still is. But there is a lot of trouble in evangelicalism. And I think part of it's because we have a paradigm that doesn't actually match with Philippians 2. Because on the one hand, I think there's people that have lost sight of grace. And what I mean by that is that they lose sight of the fact of what God is working into them first and foremost. So they spend their lives slaving away, trying to please a master who already delights in them. And these are, if you think about the prodigal son in Luke 15, these are the older brothers or the older sisters that stand outside the party. They, the father's throwing a party for the prodigal sons and daughters that have come home, that have rejected him, but then said, would you just accept me, Father, by grace? And he welcomes them in and he doesn't just shame them or send them to time out. He throws a party and the older brother is sitting outside going, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I've been doing all these things for you, Father, and yet you throw a party for them. These are people who are constantly more worried about what they're earning or what they deserve from God instead of rejoicing <clears throat> in his grace. And so what happens is, as this happens, we are left, if that's you, we are left joyless and powerless because we are in this state of earning, which only creates pride if you think you've attained it, like the older brother, or despair when you realize you'll never attain it. And here's why I say it, it's affecting evangelicalism now is what ends up happening is you have a facade that you either believe is true or you realize it's not true. And once you realize it's not true, you end up, you end up beginning to have to cover up because it exposes your lack of ability to understand the reality of your need for grace. But on the other hand, we have people who lose sight of their need to live lives worthy of the gospel. So you see sin rampant in lots of areas of evangelicalism, of the church, Instead of working out their salvation, they're laid up on the spiritual couch, spiritually overweight, spiritually lazy, spiritually lethargic, all the while talking about how God is pleased with them in Jesus. They're soaked up sponges that have never been wrung out and it's spiritual gluttony. And we see that in the church as well. However, what we see with this is the way of Jesus is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but only because he is at work in us for his good pleasure. He already delights in you if you are in Christ and he has created good works for you to walk in by faith, but you've got to walk in them. So where are you 
today? Are you on the couch? Are you on the bench? Or are you on the hamster wheel? Thinking that you're getting somewhere with your works and you're in the same spot all the time. Because neither of those lead to shining like lights. But following the way of Jesus will lead us to shining a light in our world. But as you follow the way of Jesus, you gotta know that there's some landmines ahead of you that can hinder our light. And Paul addresses two of them in verse 14. Here's what he says. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let the reader understand. (laughs) Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Next point. No, I, I wish I could just skip on. But the all things in view here is likely the call that Paul has for them to live humbly. It's probably contextually. If you look at what he's calling them to contextually, it's humbly with one, little, to live humbly with one another. And then back in chapter one, to stand firm in the face of persecution and suffering. He gives us one imperative, do all things, and two negative heart postures to avoid grumbling or disputing. And I can't think of three things more difficult to work at than unity, humility, and standing firm in the face of persecution. Unity is, we've talked about it a lot. Unity is tough, it's a fight. Humility, everything in our culture, which is so individualistic says, make a name for yourself, build yourself up, talk about you, you're the point. You're always the point. In every situation, it's never your fault. This is the culture we live in. And yet Jesus is saying, unity, tough. Humility, really tough. Standing firm in the face of persecution when everything in our nature would want to shrink back and protect ourselves. Paul is saying in this difficult working out of your salvation, I could see how it would be easy to slip into grumbling and disputing. And notice how Paul in verse 15, how he juxtaposes his charge for their hearts not to grumble with with the results of what it looks like in a heart that doesn't grumble. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, this seems to be a reference back to Deuteronomy 32, which is the song of Moses. And what, he, what Moses is talking about here, when he talks about it being a crooked and twisted generation, this is, Paul is likely quoting that from Deuteronomy. It's talking about the fact that the Lord in Exodus sets his people free from slavery to Egypt. They called out to God for help for centuries. And God in his goodness and kindness comes in. There's the 10 plagues that God uh, shows his power over any other Egyptian God, over Pharaoh himself. And then he sets them free through the Red Sea. And yet when they get in the wilderness, what do they do? Man, sure was nice being in slavery. Remember how good we ate with the Egyptians? Man, Moses, why are you, why are you leading us around in the wilderness? Can we not just go back and be, be enslaved again? And, and Paul says that that was a wicked and twisted and corrupt generation. That's who they were. And yet we judge the Israelites, but are we any different? We have, we have been set free from something bigger than slavery to some Egyptian. We've been set free from slavery to sin and to death, and we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we still find ways to grumble and complain towards God and towards each other. You see, in light of the Christ hymn in verses 6 through 11, for us to grumble and complain shows how out of touch we are with the gospel. And I'm preaching to myself. You can ask my wife. Grumbling is like my second hand language. Yet 
When we live in light of the gospel message that God has come to us in the person of Jesus and has rescued us from the domain of darkness, it equips us with the mindset of Jesus to stand firm in persecution, to trust him in suffering, to fight for unity and to be humble. In other words, following the way of Jesus disarms the landmines of grumbling and disputing amongst ourselves. And within this crooked and twisted generation in which we live, we can shine like lights in a dark world. Do I even need to draw out application for us in this? As I said earlier, it's like, he who has ears, let him hear. <laughs> Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Right now, so many of us are so easily offended by the world. We so easily want to boycott any and everything that doesn't line up with every one of our values. We don't engage the world with love. We judge the world with pride. Forgetting the fact that, as Paul would say in another letter, when we look at the world, he would say to us, and so are some of you, but you've been cleansed. You've been passive in that. God washed you clean. And I wanna be clear, there are real atrocities in the world that the body of Christ needs to speak up about and fight for justice. But we are so easily bothered. So we easily grumble and argue and complain. And we argue amongst ourselves. And the reality is we lack the joy of the Lord. But Paul says, we can be lights, but we need to be aware of the pitfalls that can hinder that. But when we do this, here's the thing, it reveals the identity given to us by Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 15, children of God without blemish. How many of you in the room today feel experientially as though you are without blemish? I'm glad to see no hands are raised. <clears throat> the reality is like we don't feel this, but we are this. That God has made us his children without blemish. And how, when we really see that, how could there be any grumbling? It should stir up awe and worship to work out our salvation as his children. So the question is, if we want to do that, we want to shine as lights, we know what can hinder us though, how do we actually maintain our light in the darkness? I was thinking about this, <clears throat> I'm going to need to take a drink for this, because I'm going to sing. Now, um, a few weeks ago, my, live, my mic was kept live on the live feed after I preached and you got to hear me sing if you were watching on the live feed. And somebody uh, that sings up here told me I sounded like Kermit and Justin Timberlake mixed together. <clears throat> so that's where the unity, like I'm trying to forgive him for that, no. Um, so when I thought about this, I thought of a song I used to sing as a kid. And if you grew up in church, you probably thought, you probably know it. It goes a little something like this. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I think Brenda was singing it before I even started. She knew where I was going. I didn't even give her my notes. That's the Holy Spirit. And I was looking at, uh, I remembered most of the song, but I was looking back at the lyrics. I had to Google, make sure I, I knew that I was in the right track here. The second verse, all around my neighborhood, I'm gonna let it shine. I remember singing that. I think we skipped that because we were like, eh, we don't love our neighbors when I was growing up. We skipped that one. That was too meddling. But then you get real fired up, right? And it's like, and this is when I, when I asked my wife, I said, do you remember this? The first thing she remembered was hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. I don't know if y'all did the actions. <clears throat> Depends on how charismatic your church was. <clears throat> and then, if you, at the, then by the end, you get real, real, real feisty, right? It's like, don't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna let it shine. And if you're real cool, you don't let Satan, like you did the blow action. Blow it out, I'm gonna let it shine, right? We let our light shine. Praise God, it's all fine and good. It's a sticky song, I remember it. I haven't sang it in probably six months. No, it's been like 30 years. And I remember that song, if it was only that easy. If it was only that easy to maintain our light. 
Because realistically, it'd be more like this. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine well, most of the time. All around my neighborhood, I'm going to let it shine. Except for over by Susan's house, I'm going to let it shine. Because she had that candidate's sign in her yard. She might as well be blind. But everywhere else that I go, I will shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. But I may cut my hands around it now at work because I can't let it shine. My, co my co-workers and boss, they don't really like my kind. So maybe I should be careful where I let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. But is Satan even real anyway? I just won't pay him mind. Maybe I'll just relight it when I'm at church next time. Then I'll let it shine. But life's too hard to let it shine all the time. This is the approach we often feel. And sorry, if your name is Susan and you voted this week, I'm sure you had your reasons for who you voted for, but... This is the approach we often feel. Maintaining our light is not as easy as the old children's song makes it out. But Paul helps us to see the way that we can maintain shining as lights. He says it in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. We hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way the Philippians were going to maintain their light was not to avoid Satan, to avoid bushels, to avoid, or to steer clear of their wonky neighbors. Nor was it to avoid suffering and persecution or to sit on the opposite side of the room of the person they didn't like when their church gathered. No, they were instructed that maintaining the light in the world was to hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the gospel is how we mature. We see Jesus, and by holding fast to Jesus and to the good news of his gospel. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians chapter three. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. There's only one way you receive the Spirit, and it's by hearing with faith. And then here's what he says in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, this is in regards to the Judaizers who were coming and saying, sure, you can be a Christian by faith, but to, to really identify, you need to be circumcised. But we can apply that in a lot of ways because we can see the fact that we come to faith. We are made child, children of God without blemish by faith. But then we view our perfection, our growing in Christ likeness, our sanctification as being done in the flesh. We often think that to mature is to, to do more works or to learn deeper theological truths. But Paul says, you are being perfected the same way you began, by the Spirit of God that sealed you with the gospel. You don't graduate from the gospel. Okay, I know we're Baptist. You can say amen. We don't graduate from the gospel. We wade deeper into the ocean that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's shallow enough to come on the shore and it's deep enough to drown in. My personal story, I shared a little bit a few weeks ago. <clears throat> I grew up in a preacher's home. Uh, I was saved at the age of seven. But by the time I got to high school, just through, I, I shared a, a few of these things on Senior Sunday, but um, there were just a few, I'm not gonna re reiterate it all, but there were a few things that kind of caused me to, to turn away from the Lord, from my heart to grow cold towards him. And by the time I came to college, I was just kind of full-fledged prodigal running the other way. <clears throat> but I came back to Jesus in 2001 through a few different circumstances. 
And there's been a lot of stumbling since. Like it's not that I'm, I've not, <laughs> not reached perfection. If you're not sure on that, this corner up here will confirm. And the thing is like, I knew I had grace. I knew I had received grace. <clears throat> when, I, when I hit rock bottom, I knew that I could run to the Lord and he'd forgive me. But oddly enough, I was not very gracious with people that were in my life that were living the way I used to live. So even though I'd received grace, I kind of looked on them in judgment. And what ended up happening was, even though I had now this new insatiable hunger to learn, to read, to study, to pray, I ended up by the mid-2000s, I was teaching a Sunday school class. I slipped kind of in my mind, though, into a pattern, I think, of trying to make up for all my failures, even though I still was failing. And when you're trying to make up for failures by continuing to fail, it doesn't lead to a whole lot of joy. And so what ended up happening for me, there was a moment, I can't remember exactly when, but I, I remember it happening vividly. I just can't remember when. I want to say it was around 2010. It was a Saturday. I was home alone in my apartment and I was on the phone with my dad in tears because I was so, I was just struggling emotionally. And my dad asked me, he said, do you believe God loves you, Nathan? And I said to him, I don't know why he would. And verbalizing that out loud was a way for me to understand that I was trying to relate to him by works. Now, I knew I would never be saved by my works, but I was trying to relate to, to God by my works. And so if I was having a good day, if I had my quiet time, if I had prayed, if I had, you know, given money to somebody on the side of the road, if I had done something nice for the elderly, man, I was... I was feeling okay, but if I was struggling, if I was, if I was struggling with sin, if I had yelled at my kids, man, why would God love me? And I began to have what I call kind of a gospel quake. It shook me in all the good ways and helped me kind of reorient my life back around the gospel. But what ended up happening over the course of a few years is I began to push really hard against legalism that I felt like I had wrestled with before that I'd gotten, I kind of got to a point where I was spiritually lazy. When conviction would come in my heart, I was like, eh, I don't know, I don't want to lean in too much to conviction because I know my own heart, I'll end up in workspace and that's devastating, I don't want to do that. And then I kind of would end up being spiritually lazy. And come 2020, for a myriad of reasons, as I'm sure a lot of you have experienced, I felt myself for only the second time really ever and probably even deeper than the first time in a depression. Now, I happened to turn 40 that year, but those are unrelated. And for about a year, I really wrestled with, again, like depression, feeling unworthy of anything good. And it took, uh, there's a lot of ways God used, worked in my life, but one book in particular, Gentle and Lowly, just really kind of wrecked me. I read the introduction and I couldn't, I couldn't get off the first page without weeping. And it corrected some things in my life using scripture, but this book to help me reorient like where I had lost sight of the real Jesus. Instead, I was hearing a not real Jesus in my head, things that didn't line up with scripture. And the reason I bring all this up is to say that the human heart, even if you're a Christian, does not drift towards holding fast in the gospel. It doesn't do it. This is an active verb. We hold fast to the gospel. We need to constantly be reminded that the foundation of our life is grace and that we work out only what he's working into us. That is how we shine and that's how we maintain our light, holding fast to the gospel. And if we hold fast to the gospel, notice finally, notice the result of that, verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is using imagery of the sacrificial system where there's the altar, the sacrifice on it, and the pouring out of the drink offering. And he's basically saying, like, if your faith is on that altar, and I've been part of instilling that in you, I am glad and rejoiced to be, my life to be poured out on top of that for you. 
As Paul models the life of Jesus, he's allowing his life to be poured out as a sacrifice for others. Does he find disputing and complaining? No, he finds joy and gladness, what we are all after in life, joy and gladness. And he encourages them to rejoice with him, gospel joy. And gospel joy, because it can't be taken away and because it happens when we're in suffering and persecution, it's attractive. This is the way Jesus says it in Matthew 15, I mean, excuse me, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says, starting in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. Now keep in mind, he's saying this to people, not individuals. Yes, individuals are there, but the church, his people, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we live lives worthy of the gospel and shine like lights in this dark world, it doesn't bring glory to ourselves. We're more like, I mean, I know there's some translations that I understand that say shine like stars, but we're more like the moon because we are not inherently the light. Jesus says he's the light. He says, I'm the light of the world. What we do is we, like the moon, we reflect the light of the true light, the greater light. And as we live as lights that shine before others, they will see how we work at our salvation, how we are unified, how we are humble, how in the face of persecution and suffering, we stand side by side, we stand Firm, they're going to see that and some will give glory to God, the Father in heaven, based upon the light that we reflect of Jesus. This light is attractive because, brothers and sisters, it's the way humanity was designed to live. See, we were designed to live, we were created to live in a certain way that reflects the glory of God. That's why we're image bearers. We reflect the glory of God to the world but because of our sin, because of the brokenness of humanity, we, we instead want to absorb and give out our own light. But it leads never to full fulfillment. When we live the way we're created to live, it's attractive. But here's the thing. While working out our salvation in the way of Jesus means that we're living the way it's fully meant, the way it, what it means to be fully human, not everyone is going to be attracted to that. Some will and will give glory to the Father. Some will not. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that some will still love the darkness. They just will. But for those who see the light, they will be drawn into a joy and a gladness that they've always wanted and never felt before. So let me finish with this charge, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters online. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may shine like lights in the world in which we live for your deepest joy and gladness and to the glory of your Father in heaven, all the while holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's call to action, as I said last week, I, do, I, try, to, I try to give us something concrete every week as a call to action, not because, again, we work our way into salvation, but because we work it out. And sometimes 
we need to just have a fresh view of the scripture and a fresh understanding of how that works from our head to our heart to our hands as we serve the Lord. And so today, first of all, if you are here today and you would just say like, you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not a follower. Maybe you believe he's a good guy. Maybe you believe he taught some good stuff, but you wouldn't say, I'm not giving my life to him. Let me just encourage you, if that's you today or if that's you watching, let me encourage you today from John chapter three. This is your call to action if you would not say you're a follower of Jesus. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is what it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He came to save you, not to condemn you. But verse 18 tells us that whoever believes in him is not condemned. What a statement. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But 18 says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God, the name Philippians 2 that is above every name. So finishing with verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you are here today and you would say like, I don't know that I wanna give my life to Jesus, I would just encourage you to step out of the darkness and into the light. If you're here today and you are a Christian, that's what's happened for you. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, what we're asking you to do, what I'm asking you to do to step out of the darkness and into the light is nothing less than what we've all had to do. And yet, it's intimidating because <laughs> you can hide in the darkness the light of Jesus exposes everything, but it exposes it in the best possible way because it actually brings healing and it allows you to step in and to see the world the way it actually is. If you're not a Christian, step out of the darkness and into the light. If you are here today and you are a believer, I got three things, three calls to action that come straight from the text. Work out your salvation. What does that mean for you personally? Like, where are you struggling right now? Number two, do that without grumbling so that you can be lights. And all of that holding fast to the gospel. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend some time in prayer. We're gonna let the Holy Spirit deal with our hearts in one of those three areas. And then if you are a believer in the room, we are calling you to take communion today. Now, this is for believers only. This is a, another way that we hold fast to the gospel. It's a reminder of what Jesus did for us. The bread, his body broken for us. The juice, his blood spilled for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so I'm gonna give us some time to pray, to see what the Lord needs to work out in your heart. And then again, if you are a follower of Christ, when we're done praying, when you're done dealing with Jesus on your own time, come forward, take the bread and the juice. You can take it together on your, I'm not gonna lead us to the actual part of taking it. You take it as you see fit with your family, by yourself, with your friends, whatever you wanna do. Let's let the Lord speak to us now and then we'll have communion.
Father, we come before you today. Grateful that you have delivered us from slavery to sin, to death. Father, that you have subverted the powers of this world, that you've delivered us from the domain of darkness into your marvelous light. And that you don't just deliver us into light, Father, you you give us your spirit and then you entrust through us the working out of our salvation. That you say that you called us to reflect your light. And we confess this morning, Lord, that so often we, we kind of long to be back enslaved to the things of this world. They're so enticing. And we're grateful that Hebrews tells us, Lord, that you are a compassionate high priest, that you've walked in our shoes, tempted in every way, that we are and yet you are without sin. And that instead of leveraging that to shame us, you leverage it to save us. And so today, Father, as we look at Jesus and we look at his body broken for us and his blood spilled for our sins, would you stir in us a deeper fear and trembling and joy and worship over your salvation? And would you then encourage us, Lord, to work that out in our neighborhood, that we wouldn't hide our light, that we wouldn't let the enemy snuff it out, that we would stand firm not for our glory, but for the glory of the name that is above every name, that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of you, Father. So would you do that in our hearts now? In Jesus' name, amen.